This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, March 8th. I'm Robert Bluey. And I'm Virginia Allen. On today's show, Rob talks with Tim Murtaugh, the former communications director for President Donald Trump's 2020 re-election campaign and the newest Heritage Foundation visiting fellow. Murtaugh will be a regular contributor to the Daily Signal and this podcast. We also read your letters to the editor and share a good news story about an eight-year-old girl who has launched an initiative to help homeless children. Before we get to today's show, Rob and I want to thank you for your support for The Daily Signal. Each day, The Daily Signal brings you the news you can trust on the most important policy debates facing our country. We cut through the liberal media spin and provide honest, thorough, and responsible reporting on today's critical issues. But we can't do it without the help of patriots like you. Consider giving a tax-deductible contribution to The Daily Signal and help us build conservative momentum this year and beyond. Just visit DailySignal.com slash donate. With your help, we can build an America where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society flourish. Now stay tuned for today's show, coming up next. We are joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Tim Murtaugh. He's a new visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and contributor to the Daily Signal. Tim, welcome to the show. Happy to be with you, Rob. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. We are so excited to have you as a new member of the team. Uh, You are just coming off a position where you served as director of communications for President Donald Trump's reelection campaign. And I'm sure that our audience wants to hear all about what it was like to work so closely with President Trump. To begin today, can you share any favorite stories from your time serving on the campaign? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure I can capture really what it was like just here in the space of this brief conversation, but it was really a wild ride. It's the, it's the best job that I've ever had, and I'm very grateful to the president for letting me serve in such a capacity. And uh, it was an amazing experience. You know, you never think you know, early on in your career that you'll be flying on Air Force One, which we did sometimes. We tried to keep costs down because the campaign has to pay for that. Uh, meeting in the Oval Office with the president is, is an incredible thing. Uh, and when you get done doing a TV hit, if I were on Fox News or CNN or something, and the phone rings and it's got four zeros on the caller ID, you know, that's the White House switchboard calling. And, and when the lady comes on and says, uh, do you have a moment to speak to the president? Um, it's, it's kind of a jarring experience, you know, and so of course you say, yeah, I've got time. And then she says, please hold. And then she comes back and says, uh, Mr. Murtaugh, uh, the president, and he's on there and he wants to, he had just watched you on TV and he wants to give you feedback and tell you you're doing a good job. But, you know, when you said X, Y, and Z, maybe you could say it a different way. And so, you know, he was a guy who was paying attention and, and really cared very much about what the, the messaging was. Um, but I think the, the, the starkest memory that I have from the campaign was on December 18th, 2019. It was the day that the, the House uh, impeached him for the first time. And uh, I was backstage as uh, they were deciding when the president was going to go out on stage. We were in Battle Creek, Michigan for a rally. And uh, the president was due on stage at a, about exactly the time that the House was going to be voting. And so there was a determination of does he go out before the vote? Does he does he wait for the vote? And so we waited for a while. And then it was clear that we didn't know when the House was going to vote. So he just went out on stage and started talking. And I stood backstage and, and I was standing next to the vice president, Mike Pence, as we watched on the monitor uh, the House proceedings as they were voting. Uh, 
uh, on impeachment while the president was on the other side of the curtain speaking to, I don't know what, 11, 12,000 people out in, in the arena. And then we had to figure out a way to get word to him about what the result of the vote was. So uh, we drew up a big sign with the, the vote totals on it and then a number three down below, which indicated that uh, three Democrats had crossed over and voted with the Republicans against impeachment. And we gave it to Kaylee McEnany, who was our campaign press secretary at the time, before she went to the White House, and sent her out into the, the buffer area in front of the stage with this really big sign. And he looked down, and uh, she was wearing a bright red dress so he could pick her out. And he went down, and, and he looked down and saw her there, and, and uh, that's how he learned uh, what the vote totals were. And he told the crowd right there uh, at that very moment. I mean, it was really surreal to be there in part of uh, that uh, piece of American history. And of course, we know that the Senate went on to uh, acquit him. And uh, we thought that would be the most unusual thing that happened during the campaign. And I guess I guess we were wrong about that. <laughs> well, and, and obviously, shortly after that, uh, the campaign, in, in many respects, uh, was thrown a curveball with uh, with coronavirus. Uh, President Trump had uh, made a name for himself and the campaign was so successful in bringing together large crowds. What was it like for you to travel, particularly when you were able to get back on the road later in the campaign, to see so much of America and interact with the American people? It's pretty amazing. You know, the, the president really did bring together uh, different parts of America who had never really uh, gotten together before in one coalition. You know, I think a lot of people were voting for for him in 2016, but also in 2020, who had never voted for a Republican before, perhaps in their lives. And so you go to these rallies, and I think the media had a, a different perspective or a preconceived notion of what the rallies were like. I, I was at a rally one time, I was sitting next to, uh, I won't name the person, but a, a well-known uh, face from one of the, the major cable networks sitting at the rally, and she had never been to one before. And I was sitting right next to her, and she leaned over to me and said, uh, is it always like this? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I mean, it's positively joyous here. There are families, there are parents with children. Everyone is, is just having the time of their lives. And I said, yes, it, it is always like this. Yes. And she said, this is just not what I expected. And I said, maybe you should stop watching your own network once, <laughs> right. once in a while. But yeah, this is what it's like at a Trump rally. And, and it was it was people from all walks of life. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, the media wants to paint it a certain way. But uh, we had uh, a lot of Hispanics and a lot of African Americans and a lot of Asian people and, and people who were from, you know, working families, union members, very, very strong supporters of the president. And then as we were able to get back to in-person events, it was really just an explosion of, of people wanting to get back to normal, of course, but also wanting to be out there and, and show their support for the president. It, it was really a great feeling. And that's that's why we really did feel like uh, up to Election Day and even beyond, we, we, were, we were very confident of victory. Well, Tim, I want to get into a few follow-up questions based on what you just said. Your campaign was able to win the votes of more than 74 million Americans who came out to support President Trump. Uh, that's 12 million more than his previous campaign in 2016. What do we know about these new Trump voters? As you were on the campaign trail, what can you tell us about the people who were attracted to President Trump's campaign who might not traditionally have been um, supporting Republican candidates for office? Well, we know that they love this country and they want to put America first, both here at home, but also on the world stage. You know, when you talk about America first, it doesn't necessarily mean being belligerent uh, in, with regard to your 
uh, interactions with other countries. But it means putting America's interests first when you're talking about those things. And, and we know that these folks, uh, the 74 million who voted for President Trump, we know that they approve of his policies and his, his successes. Uh, the world's best economy before the pandemic hit, for one. I think it's important to remember that this was a, a global pandemic that affected every nation on Earth. Um, we know that they love uh, conservative judges that the president appointed, uh, three justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. We know that uh, they appreciate that President Trump was sticking up for them. I think the overriding sentiment for a lot of these folks is that they believe that Washington had forgotten all about them for an awfully long time, and they were tired of being condescended to by the elites in Washington. And here, here was a guy, Donald J. Trump, who gave voice to their frustrations with the Washington swamp. And, and uh, I think in that way, he was really able to, to grow the party in a much broader Republican coalition than we have ever seen before. I mean, the vote total, I think, uh, shows that. And I know that Democrats uh, are, have been very nervous about the inroads that he made in the black community and the Latino community and certainly with, uh, with union members. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because we certainly saw a significant increase in support uh, from minority communities. What do you think some of the important factors were that conservatives should take into account to broaden our reach going forward uh, based on the Trump campaign? Well, I think first, uh, it helped very much in 2020 that the president had a record of uh, nearly four years in office to, to run on and, and, and point to. You know, it was a very strong economy. It was the lowest unemployment rate in the black community and Latino community in history, again, pre-pandemic. Uh, re record funding for historically black colleges and universities, more money ever devoted uh, than uh, by any of his predecessors, and also criminal justice reform. Uh, Latinos were very strong for the president. Um, in our polling, um, interestingly enough, they felt that his strong stance on China was a, a big reason why they supported him because they, they rightly felt that he was defending their jobs and their livelihoods. And, you know, I think it, it might be counterintuitive for some people, but his positions on immigration uh, actually resonated very well in the Latino community because think of it this way. If you ask uh, someone in this country who's Latino and maybe either they themselves or a member of their families in prior generations had come to this country by the legal means and done things the right way. If you ask those folks, hey, do you think that everybody else who comes here should follow the rules or do you think they ought to be able to jump in line and take shortcuts? They'll say, darn right, they should follow the rules. My family and I had to follow the rules and they should too. So I think that leftists make a big mistake when they think that they can just shout the word immigration and think that they've won the argument. You know, people people are people and they care about what affects them directly. And I firmly believe that conservative policies are best for everybody. So you have to promote those policies and point to the record of them working in those communities. And I, I think we have to make a better case of how liberal policies have failed so many people in this country. Look at the inner cities most of which have been dominated by liberals for decades or even as much as a century, point it out and say, why do you keep voting for this? And you also have to stay engaged in those communities. It can't just happen in the space of a few months during campaign season. It has to be full time. And uh, much, much like President Trump did with union workers, we, we have to be willing to make the arguments and get people to consider voting uh, conservative uh, ideals because I think a lot of people are conservative. And if they stopped and thought about it, they would agree and uh, they would be supporting conservative policies.
Well, you are so right, Tim, that uh, the president had a strong record to run on. Uh, that is uh, that is so true, and I think a lot of people saw the positive benefits in their own life uh, in so many different ways. Given um, given the president's communication style, which I, I think was unique in, in many respects and, and, and a break from so many past <laughs> yes. past uh, leaders of our country. You could say that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how important was it to have that direct line of communication to the American people through social media, which, of course— you know, we know the social media companies and and who which are, are run by leftists and and, and left leaning uh, leaders uh, probably didn't like, but the president was just masterful at it. How did you deploy that effectively to make sure that you were reaching these people who might not consider themselves traditional conservatives? Well, I mean, I I think maybe you're giving the campaign a little too much credit. We we didn't exactly deploy Donald Trump. He he did that on his own. Uh, that. That Twitter account uh, that uh, he no longer has, uh, of course, was was something that he ran. He was the master of it, and you know he could reach tens of millions of people in an instant. And uh, he was able to really uh, change the tide of conversations uh, and change actions by Congress. He would he would send the media scurrying at a moment's notice, and I think it's great. the The idea that you would have to go through the the filter of the national news media to be able to speak to the American people uh, is wrong. And I think the media was, uh, I think, jealous of the fact that he could go around them and speak right to the American people. I think the social media companies didn't like it at all, uh, but he was able to do that, absolutely. And we had polling consistently that showed that the president's policies and the way he approached the problems of this country really went off the charts when people heard directly from him and not through the filter of the national news media. When, when he spoke in his State of the Union addresses or in his rally speeches, uh, in doing focus groups and, and, and doing real-time polling and polling people after the fact, when they heard straight from him, the numbers were astronomical as compared to people who got their news from, say, CNN or NBC Nightly News, something like that. So direct communication, whether it's uh, through uh, televised speeches or through social media, uh, was really key. And there has been no one ever who communicated like that, uh, like Donald J. Trump has. That is, that is so true. And I, I think it's why so many conservatives, including us at the Heritage Foundation, uh, created uh, organizations like the Daily Signal, uh, making sure that we had our own platforms, our own media outlets that uh, that could get that message out and, and really tell the truth. I mean, we, we've had to deal with our fair share of media bias for, for decades now. And you saw it up close uh, in your role as director of communications. Just last week, uh, CNN attacked Vice President Mike Pence for a column that he wrote for, for us that the Daily Signal on election integrity. I'm just wondering what advice do you have for conservatives or Republicans in, in office as they're dealing with a hostile press? Well, you, you can't be afraid of it. You know, you know that they're there and you know that they're not going to give you a fair shake. That's for sure. But our philosophy on the Trump campaign was to go into the lion's den. Uh, the Biden campaign didn't really do that. They stayed mostly away from conservative media, figuring that the, the rest of the mainstream media would do their work for them. And I think they were largely correct in that. The media did do that. But we went into the pro-Biden media all the time, um, you know, at least when they would take us, CNN and MSNBC and the like. And look, think, think of it this way. If I went on CNN, which I did a number of times during the campaign, and I got beat up for 12 minutes, but I was actually able to get across some of our points for 30 or 60 seconds. It's probably the only 30 or 60 seconds of our viewpoint 
that CNN viewers were going to hear all day. And that's not a lot, 30 to 60 seconds, but it's better than zero. So I say take the fight to them. Make the case. You know, get in their stories. Uh, I, one thing that sticks out in my mind is I was on Chris Cuomo's show one night, very close to the election, just a week or so before the election. And I knew he was going to, to press me about the president's approach to COVID. And I knew he was going to ask me some self-righteous questions about how the president didn't do enough and he didn't take it serious and all that stuff. And I think everyone can remember back when he was having his, his brother, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, on the show. They used to make fun of each other all the time. And Chris Cuomo had this giant Q-tip that he held up and made fun of his brother and say, hey, you'd need a Q-tip this big because your nose is so is so large. And they were yucking it up while the while the pandemic was in full swing, especially in New York City. And so when he when Chris Cuomo had me on, it was grilling me about the president not taking seriously. I was I was ready. Then I had a printout of the picture of the two of them with the giant Q-tip. And I said, now, come on now, Chris, does this look like a couple of guys who are taking the pandemic seriously? And, you know, he, I don't think he was quite expecting that. And he's like, <laughs> he said, well, you know what? Yeah, sure, I had him on. And you know what? It was funny. And so, so I think the point was made. And you just have to be ready, be creative, and, and know that uh, they're not going to be on your side. But don't be afraid of the debate. I know Heritage, of course, not afraid of the debate. And um, you guys have been doing a great job for generations. Why I'm so thrilled to be associated with you now. Um, but I think you can have relationships with the media that would be considered adversarial. I got along very well with most of the reporters and the TV hosts that I dealt with over the last two years, a few exceptions maybe, but by and large, they are professionals and they will try to let you make your points. You're not going to fix every bad story and you're not going to win every argument, but you got to give it a try. That's great advice, Tim. And, and we appreciate you going into to the lion's den <laughs> to, to do it that. It was fun. I mean, it was yes. fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, President Trump recently spoke at CPAC and he outlined the different direction that our country is taking under this current Biden administration. Um, we're seeing some of those co- consequences really early on in his administration, um, not necessarily living up to the promise to govern from the center or as a moderate, uh, as, as, he, as he said he would. Um, instead, there are some some fairly significant uh, policies that uh, take a hard left direction. What is the most important thing that conservatives can do to confront uh, this growing threat in America, not only of socialism, but uh, an attempt, I think, to radically change our country? Well, I think what we're seeing here is is a, a display of the truism that elections have consequences. You know, we are going down a radical path, and and to some extent, I would I would tell people that it should not be a surprise. These, a lot of these things are things that Biden said he was going to do, at one point or another during the campaign, and we argued, and I think it's bearing out to be true, that he is controlled to a large degree by the extreme elements uh, of his of his party. So, what can we do about this as we you know, fear that we're heading down the road towards socialism. I'm not pandering here, Rob, but getting involved with organizations like Heritage is very, very important, bringing attention to what's going on, because the mainstream media is not going to do that. And I think that the way to combat this is to get involved, to familiarize uh, yourself with what the issues are. Take a look at what the conservative philosophy says about a given topic, whether it's energy policy or immigration policy or tax policy, and see uh, who's been in charge and what policies have been affecting your direct life. And, And let me say this, 
who lives in the White House is very important, no question of that. And it's important who controls Congress because they set the you know the big picture, the macro policies for the country. But a lot of things that happen that affect most people uh, the most and most directly happen at the state and local levels. You know, a school board election may well be more important to you in the long run than a presidential election could ever be. And because those are where the policies are made that affect you and your family every single day. School board, city council, that kind of thing, state legislatures and governors, of course. And then I think at near the end of the list is is Congress and and president. So uh, elections have consequences. And I think getting involved, uh, making your voice heard, and and uh, joining the argument, joining the argument that no conservative policies are better. Individual freedoms, economic freedoms, uh, free market approaches, those sorts of things are in fact better. Capitalism has created more wealth among more individuals than any other system ever known to man, and we need to absolutely defend it and its freedoms. Tim, last year we created something called the Citizen's Guide to Fight for America. It was our effort at uh, at Heritage, which is ongoing, uh, to do things in a uh, 501c3 nonprofit compliant way to give Americans an opportunity. And and I just want to give a plug for it because you just had such a a great lead into it. It's heritage.org slash citizen's guide. And our listeners can check that out and uh, and sign up and and get involved. But one follow-up question for you. You spoke earlier in our conversation about so many of President Trump's accomplishments during the four years in office. What are you most worried about the Biden administration undoing uh, from those successful policies? Well, there's a lot because I th- the president did, President Trump had a great list of accomplishments. And I think having worked in the Trump administration for two years before the campaign, I was communications director for Secretary Sonny Perdue at USDA. Uh, I, I know a lot of federal employees from USDA and also in other, in other uh, agencies, not political appointees, but career employees there. And what I'm hearing now is that the Biden team is coming in and overturning Trump policies, in many cases, just because they are Trump policies, just out of hand, changing things back to the Obama ways because they have, you know, the Trump label on them. And I I think that's short sighted. And I think that's that's reckless, just simply doing things because the previous guy uh, was not to your liking. And so you're just going to change it back to be almost spiteful. Uh, I don't think that's any way to run a government. But on the on the big picture items, I think uh, the rollbacks that Biden is already attempting to do that are dangerous, I think one on immigration. We're already seeing a crisis at the border with record-shattering migrant children showing up at the border. And I think Biden uh, is getting cover from the national news media. But, you know, we heard so much about kids in cages when Donald Trump was president. Well, Joe Biden has reopened uh, those facilities that, that he so reviled during the campaign. And I think the situation is getting worse because when you advertise that you're not going to deport anyone and you're going to provide amnesty. You're going to attract more people. It's common sense. And so no wonder there is a flood at the border. I think immigration is, uh, one, it's a public safety issue. It's an economic issue because it threatens the jobs and creates more competitions for Americans, people who are here legally, who need jobs, particularly coming out of the coronavirus economic downturn. Taxes is another thing. I think there's no secret, no doubt, that Joe Biden is going to try to raise taxes uh, substantially on people, and that is an economy killer, especially, again, coming out of an economic downturn. Regulation, not a sexy topic, I don't think, but 
One of the great unsung accomplishments of the Trump administration was the cutting of red tape, freeing up entrepreneurs to do what they do best and, and create jobs. I, I think it's simplistic to talk about the government and the president creating jobs. What, what President Trump did, I think masterfully, was help the government create the conditions under which private sector entrepreneurs and private sector employers can create jobs themselves. That's what's government, what government's role is, is to clear away for the private sector to be able to flourish. And that's what he did. And I fear that uh, Biden is just going to heap those regulations right back on again, and all that good will be undone. And then I think a, a final area that is very important is energy. We already see that uh, President Biden has killed the Keystone XL pipeline deal, and that's going to cost uh, 11,000 jobs right away, 1,000 people getting laid off right now, and 10,000 jobs that will never be created. He's also going to get us uh, back in and has gotten us back into the Paris Accord, which purposefully hamstrings and kneecaps our own economy uh, in the hopes that other countries will follow suit and do what the, the, the accord says they're supposed to do. But there's no enforcement provisions. There's no punishment or consequences for failing to do it. And even John Kerry admits that if the United States went down to zero emissions tomorrow, it would have basically no impact on world climate because 90% of the emissions come from outside the United States. So I think that all of the things that President Trump has accomplished in those areas are very important. And I think that Joe Biden is, is going to immediately set to rolling them all back. And I think it's very dangerous. Well, Tim, that gives you no shortage of uh, topics to cover in your Daily Signal column. Uh, tell our listeners about what are some of the things that you hope to, to be writing about for us uh, in your stint as a contributor. I think that's one. When I just finished the last answer with energy is one. I think that the, the, the idea that the Keystone XL pipeline cancellation was a good thing for the environment is wrong. Uh, I think he did it just to uh, appease the environmental activists that supported him so strongly during the campaign. And if you look at it, what he's done is he's forced that oil is not going to stop coming from Canada just because the pipeline is dead, that particular pipeline. It's going to be transported by railway and by truck, which historically and statistically are far more dangerous than a pipeline is. Historically, that's just a fact. So I think the, the joke is on the environmentalists. They won basically a symbolic victory because it's actually worse for the environment the way that they've got it designed now. So I'll be talking about, I think, Biden policies uh, and uh, probably some commentary on our good friends in the news media as well. Well, we're looking forward to, to those contributions. I want to close with a sports question. Uh, both of us are long-suffering Pittsburgh Pirates fans. Uh, of course, um, you know, <laughs> this season yeah. is, is not, not necessarily going to be uh, resulting in a World Series championship. But uh, how do we get back on track, Tim? And uh, what are your predictions for the coming season? Well, yes, long-suffering is right. My grandfather was the manager of the Pirates, Danny Murtaugh, for a long time in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so I have early memories of the Pirates being very good. And, you know, Barry Bonds' years were now a very long time ago. It was well after my grandpa. But, um, and the, the Andrew McCutcheon years are now fading into distant memory. So, I, I mean, I would answer your question by saying that it's a good thing that Major League Baseball doesn't have relegation like soccer, where you get kicked out of the top league if you're not good enough. Uh, I was I was joking with someone the other day, you know, at this time of year, we're right around the corner from Major League Baseball, plus the Pirates. 
So, I mean, I, I can't see much better than a last place finish, I'm sorry to say. And I hope the, they, that they are able to hold on to some of their young, homegrown talent and uh, maybe pick up a couple of free agents or two across, over the course of a few years. But I, I'm afraid they're once again back into that familiar rebuilding uh, mode. And uh, as we often see with the Pirates who serve as sort of a, uh, an adjunct farm system for the rest of Major League Baseball. Well, uh, Tim, I, I have to say it is, it is such an honor to uh, to talk to uh, a Murtaugh. Um, my, <laughs> my father grew up in the Pittsburgh area, attended games when when your grandfather was uh, was the manager. Uh, my, my dad says he's the best manager in Pirates history, hands down. Uh, no one's even close. Um, he also was a Pirates uh, player, um, second yes. baseman, right? Played um, second so, base, yep. So, uh, so definitely, um, you know, <laughs> even though we are long-suffering fans, we, uh, we have uh, a special place in our heart for for those Pittsburgh Pirates. Tim Murtaugh, it's great to have you on board as a contributor to the Daily Signal and visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us today. You bet, Rob. Thank you very much. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? The Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinars and register, visit heritage.org events. Thank you for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who do you have first? In response to Pete Parisi's article, Rush Limbaugh's rare voice extolled individual liberty and limited government, John Wilkerson of Germantown, Maryland, writes, Although Rush is gone, the spirit of America lives on, and another patriot will pick up the banner and continue to fight for conservatism. Ironically, the mainstream media who despise Rush so much are the reason for his success. If the fake media had reported honestly and fairly, there would never have been a reason for Rush to step forward. Rush Limbaugh provided fact-based conversations in contrast to agenda-driven content. Thanks, Rush. And in response to that same piece, Sherry Shearer of New Bloomfield, Pennsylvania writes, I'd like to thank Peter Parisi for his wonderful tribute to Rush Limbaugh. He was an amazing man, smart, funny, and also very sweet. When Rush would get calls from young people, I think he just loved that he was influencing their lives in a positive way. He seemed genuinely thrilled to be talking to them. His charitable side showed in the money he raised for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, I believe somewhere in the vicinity of $5 million. Not too shabby. Rush's insights were always invaluable, many times causing me to say, wow, I never thought of it like that before. Noon to 3 p.m. certainly will be a very lonely time for me from now on. Thank you again for the nice article. Your letter could be featured on next week's show, so send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Virginia, we love starting the week with a good news story. What do you have for us today? Thanks so much, Rob. 
Every child deserves to smile. That is the philosophy of an eight-year-old girl named Peyton. Peyton recently learned that there are about 2.5 million American kids who experience homelessness every year. So she decided she needed to take action to help because as she told Fox News, I don't really like the sound of that. The young Wisconsin native wanted to do something to help children in her community and beyond who do not have a home to call their own and who are facing really challenging circumstances. So she asked her mom if she could invite 100 homeless children to her birthday party. The pandemic has prevented the young philanthropist from throwing a big party, but it has certainly not stopped her from launching an initiative to help homeless children. Peyton decided to found the group Eye of a Child to spread awareness about child homelessness, collect toys, and raise money for kids in need. Peyton is sending the items collected and the money to homeless shelters in the Milwaukee area and in Los Angeles, where some of her family lives. The Eye of a Child website states that homelessness devastates many children locally and on a global scale. With the growth of child poverty, it's up to us, the change makers, to keep these children feeling safe and grounded in tumultuous times. Peyton has created a t-shirt and homemade crayon hearts to sell in order to raise money for the initiative. Her local community has been very quick to support her, allowing her to sell her items outside of their businesses. She recently sent toys, goodie bags filled with hygiene products, and a $500 check to a women's shelter in Milwaukee called Joy House. Every child in the shelter received a brand new toy from Peyton. Peyton told Fox News that if you have a dream, please follow it. Don't give up because you probably can reach your goal. And the young girl's own next goal is to raise $1,000 to continue to meet the needs of homeless children. Just such a precious story. It's always so good to see individuals who are stepping up to help others, but it's especially wonderful to see a young person who's taking that initiative to perform acts of kindness towards others. It sure is, Virginia. Thanks so much for bringing us that story today. We certainly appreciate it and, and wish her all the best in, uh, in her endeavor there. Absolutely. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows are available at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to other listeners. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.